Wapping Project is a, a vision which encapsulates new work, the commissioning of writers, poets, choreographers, composers, filmmakers, video makers and photographers. Space is scientific. Space is about sustainability. Space is about humanity. Space is about culture. Space is about memory. Space is also about strategic issues commercial issues, about military issues. Hello and welcome uh, to the latest edition of Pass Forward, uh, the Whopping Project of 20, the new podcast series uh, with your host Gareth Evans. I'm delighted uh, to be in conversation for this edition uh, with the uh, wonderful artist and reader at the University of Kent, Shona Illingworth, and her protagonist in the extraordinary project Topologies of Air, Nick Grief, Emeritus Professor at the University of Kent and practising barrister at Doughty Street Chambers. Welcome to you both. Hi Gareth. Thank you very much indeed, Gareth. Great to have you both with us. Uh, we're going to be talking about this remarkable multidisciplinary, multidimensional project, Topologies of Air, which uh, takes us into many, many different ways of thinking about the cultural, political, social, and even economic uh, nature of the skies above us. Now, we don't have uh, enough time to do this project real justice in this particular podcast, but what we want to do here, of course, is to uh, draw listeners' attention to the incredible um, diversity of approaches that uh, that you, Shona, and Nick have, have, have drawn together in this evolving project. This is still moving towards its completion in a number of ways that we'll talk about. But I want to show you if you could set the scene for us, because this um, is both an example of your incredible re research-driven cross-disciplinary approach to the subject matter that you've uh, engaged with in artworks over many years. But it also comes from a personal uh, perspective for you, I think. It goes back to your childhood in sense of how you were thinking about what the skies meant to you then. Is that correct? That's absolutely right, Gareth. I grew up on the edge of a major NATO bombing range um, called Cape Wrath on the northwest corner of Scotland. And that range is a 360 degree range, which means it can be attacked from any angle. And so it's high, highly prized by um, NATO and its allies for major training exercises, which take place twice a year. Um, and the training exercises involve both land, air and sea attack. And it's also a weapons testing range where the military are allowed to use live bombing and they're also allowed to drop up to 1,000 pound um, bombs from aircraft. And so growing up I could be playing outside in this very remote um, and actually very beautiful landscape, um, huge mountains, you know, vast expanses of sky and sea and suddenly, without warning, the, the whole landscape and experience of that place would change dramatically with um, 
at that time tornado GR4 jets screeching through the air and flying in very low to drop their bombs on a target which was a small island called Garvey Island literally just off the coast. And so for me that sudden transition in the whole phenomenological um, experience of place and you know the psychological relationship to it and how that was massively transformed through the military control and presence in the sky that was both um, completely a sort of physical impact um, was very pronounced. Space is not regulated and does not belong to the country above which it sits, as is the airspace. To me, means that it's an open space for information collection. Thank you very much indeed. So one of the key elements here, I think, uh, that would be very useful for our listeners, Nick, is just to establish a sense of definition around some of these terms. In a way, there are a number, quite literally, in the air for us today. There's the idea of the sky, the idea of atmosphere, the idea of space and outer space. And then particularly, I guess, for you, there's the issue of airspace. Now, these forms of definition are very important and they all obviously uh, bring slightly different things with them. I'm also struck uh, by how some of these um, debates are going on in regards to the ocean beyond territorial and coastal waters. There's the sense of the high seas and, and what might be permissible um, and legal uh, in that commonly held area of the oceans, both above and below the water. And also, I think there's a there's a growing movement, which we obviously can't really talk about today, uh, to do with what goes on beneath our feet, the subterranean uh, uh, legality of space, if you like, to do with how far beneath the earth um, uh, national uh, permissions and territories also uh, uh, continue because of uh, extraction, excavation and so on. So it's really something that is 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 active in the culture now. But I wonder if you could think for us a little bit about what, what airspace might mean at this point. Certainly do, that's right, Gareth. Uh, I've, for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by aeroplanes, aviation, airspace. I can remember lying on the sand uh, off the Devon coast, uh, gazing up into the sky uh, and thinking to myself, somewhere up there is a boundary between airspace and outer space. I must confess that I wasn't a child at this point. I was probably a, uh, a first year or second year law student. Um, and I'd already been introduced to international law and I, I'd be begun to develop a, a, a real love of international law and of the law of uh, airspace and outer space in particular, subjects that I ended up teaching. Um, so that's why I was on my back on the sand and looking up into the sky and thinking somewhere up there is the, is the boundary line between airspace and outer space. So yeah, uh, it, it goes back you know, 50, 50 plus years, certainly. Tremendous. Now, one of the soundtracks, of course, that might be accompanying this conversation uh, could be Telstar, of course, the uh, wonderful um, uh, pop record named yep. after the communications satellite um, That's launched right. in 1962. Um, now, Nick, 
You've worked, obviously, in, in a number of uh, uh, connections with you know, nuclear weapons, disarmament, defending uh, protesters um, uh, on public order offences at Aldermaston, where warheads for Trident are made, and so on, but particularly drawn now to your representation of the Marshall Islanders um, towards nuclear disarmament and the obligation of, of larger territories to negotiate with them in good faith uh, towards that end. Now, before we move directly onto topologies of air, I wonder if you could just give us a sense of, of definitions here, because Shona mentioned obviously um, elements of the of the space above us, but it's very important to be precise, isn't it? Because we have a number of terms here. We have the idea of sky. We have the idea of uh, the space above it. The, the you know the the cosmic space. We have the atmosphere, and we have airspace. And they're all slightly different things, of course, uh, when it comes to actually determining what can happen within them and and how we uh, construct them. So uh, you're particularly focused on airspace, which perhaps is the is you know one of the glues between you and Shona in this project. Um, I wonder if you could just sort of give us a sense of how these terminologies work. Airspace is the air, by, by airspace I mean the airspace above uh, a state's territory. Uh, so airspace above a state's territory is, is its sovereign airspace. It's subject to the exclusive sovereignty of the subjacent state. Um, for a coastal state, airspace extends horizontally out uh, to the 12 mile limit. Uh, the, the limit of the territorial sea. For a landlocked state, obviously, there is no uh, sea margin at all. It's, it's simply uh, the airspace above the land territory of that state. Um, what we don't have yet in international law is any agreed uh, boundary between airspace and the space above it, which is outer space. Uh, so from a legal point of view, I, I would say that we're dealing with two particular spaces, airspace and outer space, but we don't have a boundary yet to delimit the one from the other, uh, which is what I was gazing up into the sky contemplating all those years ago. Somewhere up there, there, there is a boundary. And the reason why there must be a boundary is because, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, the airspace above a, a state's territory is subject to that state's complete and exclusive sovereignty, whereas outer space is an international area. It's the province of all humankind. It's not subject to appropriation by any state by means of claim of sovereignty or, or any other means. So there has to be some point up there uh, where the, the national becomes the international, if I could put it like that. And there are various theories that have been put forward. Um, the point at which uh, an object, an artificial satellite um, in orbit loses uh, aerodynamic lift and, and becomes subject to centrifugal forces. I'm, I'm no uh, physicist, so I, I don't really understand those terms very well. But, you know, pe people suggest that there is a boundary somewhere around 62 miles, 100 kilometres, 110 kilometres above the surface of the Earth. But as I mo said a moment ago, that, that has not been fixed yet. Um, but it, it, it is important to distinguish between the, the, the airspace as uh, sub part of the state's sovereign territory and, and outer space, which is an international area, not subject to national appropriation. 
Thank you very much indeed. I mean, we were seeing parallels, of course, um, with your own inquiries into, into airspace um, alongside, you know, the coastal waters and high seas relationship, I guess. Um, there are obviously um, moves to try and uh, form some kind of order, particularly for migrant workers and container ship workers, etc., um, where all sorts of abuses have been reported, of course, in, in the open uh, in the open sea uh, uh, landscape, if you like. And, and also there are moves, I think, perhaps you can correct me on this, to, to look at what's happening beneath our feet and how, how, how deep um, national territory might extend um, into, into the earth. Is that right? I mean, do you find a kind of cultural shift on all these fronts at the moment? I can't speak about what's happening beneath our feet. I do know that, um, for example, the deep seabed uh, has long been recognised as uh, the common heritage of humankind. Mm. Um, that's enshrined in the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Interestingly, that, that was first proposed, that common heritage idea was first proposed by Malta in, I think, I might need to be corrected, the late 1960s, 67, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and 15 years later, 1982, it becomes enshrined in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea which is still in force today. Why that's interesting for Shona and me, I think, is that here was a, a small state, Malta, putting forward this proposal for the legal status of the deep seabed. And mm -hmm. not that many years later, that is enshrined in a, an international treaty, the UN Convention. And I think there, there is, we can draw some some inspiration from from that and some some confidence from that because in the uh, the right that we're proposing that we'll no doubt come on to discuss um, at some stage we're going to need what we're proposing uh, to be championed by one or more states if it's going to have any mm -hmm. chance of being uh, recognized and accepted internationally so we, we, we can draw some, some strength, I think, and some inspiration from what happened regarding the deep sea bed. The electromagnetic spectrum on which satellites must use to function is absolutely not a commons. In terms of a kind of optical regime where there's a kind of asymmetry of power and an asymmetry of access to satellite information, that's intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, which is absolutely integral to contemporary air-dominated campaigns. That kind of intelligence that is gathered through drone feeds and satellite imagery is what will then determine if a strike takes place or not. So that kind of asymmetry of power is shifting even further towards governments and for-profit companies being those who have the commanding aerial perspective. Tremendous. Thank you very much indeed. And absolutely, we will come on to uh, the larger campaign uh, very shortly. Now, Shona, Topologies of Air, um, as with your previous work, is, a, you know, as I've mentioned, a multi-dimensional, uh, cross-disciplinary project and uh, obviously is has been underway for several years now. Um, it's still uh, moving towards its uh, formal cultural completion, but has a, a larger aspect, as, as Nick has intimated. Now, when you decided to set this in motion, of course, you, as always, are very collaborative in your practice and, and your 
approach Nick and others um, uh, in terms of determining the uh, the course of the work. But uh, this is a moving image project in, in one of its incarnations, and this has been filmed uh, across the world, but has a particular focus in Bahrain and the UAE, where you've done a lot of work, both in filming, um, in workshops, and also in forms of presentation. And I wonder if you could just give us a sense uh, this is a project, of course, that the Whopping Project uh, is directly uh, supporting, hence our conversation today. But I wonder if you could give us a sense, um, perhaps just as, a, as an example, of how the Middle Eastern encounters worked in, in terms of the project. I spent two weeks on an artist residency in Bahrain, hosted by Bahrain National Museum, um, which enabled access actually to many, many different places to film and make work and research. Um, I filmed the oil fields, um, which are very extensive, and, and they're very old oil fields, relatively speaking. They're, they originated in the 1960s. And so the landscape is literally covered with the, a network of oil pipes, um, gas plants with um, flares and derricks. But also in that landscape, there were, um, at the time that I went, um, spent there, there were many, many tents. And these tents were um, set up, encampments set up by Bahraini people who come to stay in the desert during the winter time. So you get this extraordinary juxtaposition between a sort of deep historical cultural uh, move to the desert during the winter and people living in that those tents, although now they use them for um, weekend, um, just in the weekends and for family gatherings, and the more contemporary um, oil fields coexisting. I also spent time filming um, an archaeological dig in the royal burial mounds um, from the Abdilman period. And I was really struck by how in that landscape, the on the ground, you have the coexistence of these different historical, um, uh, economic, um, uh, political and cultural dimensions coexisting, all of which have this very complex relationship to the sky. Um, of course, with the oil industry, there is the, the kind of, you know, inescapable link between fossil fuels and climate change. And the fact that um, Bahrain is an, a fairly low level island, um, inevitably climate change and rising sea levels are going to have an impact on that landscape. And yet its whole, um, or the, the development of oil has been a huge driver for um, the uh, con for contemporary Bahrain as it is now. And then you have the history of the ancient sky, which, and, and Gareth, you mentioned the kind of collaborations I have. And I should say that during the residency in Bahrain, I spent um, time talking to many people about their relationship to the sky from, their, from very different perspectives, um, which included talking to um, uh, the um, archaeologist Stefan Turk Larsen um, about the uh, impact of light pollution on our access to the ancient sky, but also the, uh, the change in our relationship 
to um, an understanding of the sky in contemporary, t in, in more contemporary times, has in a sense completely transformed and in some senses um, made an ancient perspective on the sky um, inaccessible. The vast majority of people since 2008 has been living in mega cities. So we are all subjected to a light pollution which takes out the experience of the ancient night sky. Thank you very much indeed, Shona. No, Bahrain has clearly been absolutely central uh, to this project. But I believe also, obviously, Sharjah also delivered um, a really significant and distinctive uh, material for topologies of air as well. The residency in Sharjah was hosted by the Sharjah Art Foundation, and which equally it gave me um, huge support and access to, um, to knowledge, research, understanding of that landscape and people. So in Sharjah, I, I spent a lot of time in the desert, um, parts of the desert that appear relatively um, uninhabited. Um, I also spent time filming very different places, for instance, the desalination plant, a kind of enormous, incredibly loud, energy-hungry um, place <laughs> that uh, produces most of the fresh water that is available in the region, which really um, made me understand the kind of extraordinary dependency on this form of technology to uh, maintain life actually by providing drinking water in the region but also the again the extraordinary um, cost in terms of energy consumption in order to be able to do this. I also spent time filming in the airport which was extremely interesting as well. Um, Shasha Airport was this, this extraordinary and quite uh, disturbing film but it's a film that describes Sharjah Airport as being a kind of colonial outpost, as a, as a waypoint between um, Europe and, well, in particular, the, the UK and its colonies further afield. And what that made me realise very specifically is that the airspace has always been tethered to the ground. There is this kind of uh, map, if you like, this air map that links airspace and the route of aeroplanes to these airports on the ground that is essentially um, aligned to the map of the colonization of different um, territories and different um, states, different um, countries. So being in that landscape, filming in that landscape, relating to and, and um, thinking about that landscape through the lens of a camera and through um, recording sound and recording conversations with people, enabled me to think about the interconnections and the um, uh, the relationships and the complexity, if you like, of the sky, not just as I mentioned earlier, as viewed as an open, voidal, empty, infinite space or an instrumentalized space for um, 
for the uh, use of technological hardware but, um, and data collection, but also as a, as, as a space that has a deep cultural, philosophical history, and also a space that is formed, if you like, of many different cosmologies, very different understandings of the relationship between sky and ground, sky and, and land. You could absolutely wreak total destruction through the use of weaponry in space. Thank you very, very much indeed. I mean, it's clearly a remarkable project. And I'll come to you again shortly just to um, let us know where the kind of uh, the, the, the creative outcome of the project is going to manifest itself in terms of the installation. But now, Nick, if I could just ask you to give us a sense of another key component of this uh, extraordinary undertaking, which is the airspace tribunal. Now, this is obviously um, prompted, if you like, partly by what happened with Malta, as you said earlier, about the, the possibility of making a, you know, a fundamental change to how we perceive our, our shared reality um, from what might appear at the beginning to be a, a small start. But this is an extraordinary undertaking that you've initiated with Shona and others uh, towards a new human right to protect the freedom to live without physical or psychological threat from above. Now, this is obviously something where your own legal history and, and vocation comes uh, centrally into play. So could you give us a sense of what, what the tribunal is and, and what it's undertaken and achieved so far? We set up the tribunal in the summer of 2018, um, Shona and I, and the first hearing was held in London at Doughty Street Chambers in September 2018. Um, and, and the point of the tribunal, it's a people's tribunal, so we don't have a bench of judges. The, the audience are the judges. And at the end of each hearing, we've had three hearings so far, the audience votes on a proposition, should the proposed human right be recognised or, or not. Um, and at each hearing, we have a series of, a panel of, of, of experts who interrogate the proposed human right from their own particularly, particular expertise, from their own perspective. Importantly, we also have speakers with a background in, uh, of lived experience. People, for example, in, in Sydney, the second hearing, which was held uh, in October 2019, we had two remarkable people who had lived through the Iran-Iraq war and who had direct experience of the trauma caused by the, the, the threat of and, and by actual aerial bombardment. One had lived through that war as a child, the other uh, as a young adult. And both recounted their, their personal experience of having lived through that very, very traumatic experience for many years. Uh, so importantly, our counsel to the tribunal was Kirsty Brimelow QC from Doughty Street Chambers, one of my colleagues at Doughty Street. She is, a, without doubt, one of the, the leading human rights lawyers of our generation. Um, she was, until fairly recently, the chair of the Bar Human Rights Committee in uh, England and Wales. And her role as counsel and uh, the, the role of Professor Andrew Burns 
uh, at the Sydney hearing, their role as counsel is to interrogate the speakers, the experts, uh, to pose questions, to uh, tease out further information and, and uh, help the audience to understand the arguments that are being put forward. And then to facilitate uh, questions from the audience to the speakers. And then crucially, at the end of each hearing, before the audience vote, the, it's the job of the counsel to the tribunal to formulate, a, to sum up, to formulate a, a, a succinct summing up of, of what the hearing has elicited from the speakers and through the questions and answers. Kirsty has, has done a brilliant job, both in London and Toronto. Andrew did a, an equally outstanding job in Sydney. So uh, we are indebted to Kirsty and Andrew for the roles that they've played and we hope will continue to play in this airspace tribunal. As I said, we've had three hearings so far since September 2018, and we're currently uh, beginning discussions on a future hearing later this year uh, based in Berlin, but I think it's going to be a virtual hearing again because of the pandemic. We're unlikely to be able to, to, to get to Berlin for the next hearing. Plans are to release the sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere. Great big reflectors, mirrors in space that can reflect sunlight away. The impact of this fails will be absolutely catastrophic. Thank you both very much indeed. I mean, it's an extraordinary project, as I've said on a number of occasions during this conversation. Um, and if people want to see uh, the full range of the tribunal uh, to date, then please do obviously visit the dedicated website, airspacetribunal.org, where you can find details of each of the three hearings so far and obviously witness there the, the full range of the lived experience and uh, diverse disciplines of all the participants. Now, Nick, before we move uh, to a close uh, with Shona telling us about the, the installation and its outcome. Um, with the tribunal, clearly you've mentioned Berlin is perhaps the site of the next hearing virtually or in person, depending. But how does it work legally in terms of taking forward the, the findings of the tribunal into a kind of campaign for legislative change because one might uh, be thinking at this point perhaps of the Extinction Rebellion People's Assemblies which have been um, undertaken over the last uh, months. Again a popular uh, gathering uh, sharing uh, their thoughts on collective issues of, of note to us all but there again is no to my knowledge no formal relationship between those assemblies and then what might happen governmentally here or elsewhere. Is there, a, is there a kind of established route by which a tribunal hearing can then lead to some form of, of legal uh, uh, proposal? I don't think I describe it as an established route but if, if one looks back at the history of the development of human rights since the Second World War and, and one of our speakers, Conor Gerty, uh, talked about this at the London hearing. Uh, civil society has played a key role in, in many aspects of the development of human rights over the last 60, 70 years. Um, so that's, that's why the fact that this is a people's tribunal is, is significant. We are, through these hearings, the ones that have happened and the ones yet to come. We're, we're building up, we're building the case in favour, we hope, of 
recognition of this proposed new human right to protect the freedom to live without physical or psychological threat from above. And it's the psychological threat that for me is, is crucial here. Um, if I could just add that for me, one of the most poignant experiences of, of the three hearings so far is, is to hear from psychologists and also through lived experience how trauma becomes uh, encoded in people's memory systems and then haunts their future, as, as someone put it in, at the most recent hearing. Um, so we're building, we hope, the case in favour of recognition of this proposed human right but you, you raise a really good question. So what? What happens if we, we are able to develop this, this case strongly? Um, we want to present the, the findings of these hearings uh, to international organisations, the United Nations, the Council of Europe, other uh, international organisations, um, and encourage them as strongly as we can to, to take this on and incorporate this right into human rights treaties like the European Convention on Human Rights or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Global Human Rights Treaty. But realistically, we know we're, we're going to need uh, a state or more, more than one state, ideally, to champion this for us in international organisations. And that's why I mentioned the example of Malta and the Deep Sea Bed proposal uh, earlier on in, in, in this podcast because uh, one of our challenges is going to be to, to find one or more states who, who are prepared to, to, to run with this and, and to, to make the case with us uh, in international fora, in international organisations. I, I ought also to say that, certainly from my point of view, the right that we're uh, urging recognition of it could already be recognised through a creative interpretation of existing human rights, for example the right to respect for private life, perhaps coupled with the right to life or the right to liberty and security. But the evidence that's coming out of the tribunal hearings is convincing me, and I think I was kind of convinced before we start, but I'm certainly convinced now, that we need a standalone right of this kind. The, the evidence is so compelling now, particularly around the psychological impact of aerial bombardment and, and of, the, the constant, of the constant fear of attack and how that haunts people's futures. The, the, the evidence is so compelling that we need a standalone right. And that's certainly how Kirsty Brumelow QC summed up uh, at the end of the, the Toronto hearing uh, just a few weeks ago. So, so that's, that's how I see this unfolding. Of course, we, we can't control, and it's right that we can't control, the actual outcome. Because although we, we, we had the idea of, of, of creating this tribunal and staging these hearings, they, these are people's tribunals. This is a people's tribunal. These are people's hearings. And, and what happens with our proposal very much depends on the people who who are in the audience at each of the hearings. Thank you so much indeed, Nick. I mean, it's very clear to me 
from listening to both of you that this is a really extraordinary shared project, one in which neither side is just paying lip service to the themes, but directly involved, of course, in, in the outcomes, and, and many and various they are. Now, Shona, just before we close, uh, we uh, will obviously want to talk about the, the creative outcome of this project, the Topologies of Air installation. That's still planned, I hope, for this year. Is that right? That's right, yes. It's due to open in September this year. Um, and the work itself will be a large three-screen video installation with a very um, uh, um, immersive sound. And the work itself will incorporate a number of uh, voices from the Airspace Tribunal hearings, but also um, people that I've spoken to in depth about um, these issues from their various perspectives, including um, survivors of the, um, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, um, uh, where I have also spent time uh, filming for the project, um, and, and many others, um, including astrophysicists, um, poets, writers, um, geologists, geographers, neuropsychologists, um, human rights experts, a, a very a, and and people, you know, who have experienced um, someone who has experienced the immediate aftermath of the use of chemical warfare, um, and others. Uh, many others. So, um, yeah. So I so I see the topologies of air as as very much a um, a piece that connects very deeply to the emerging conversations that come out of the um, airspace tribunal. Those wars, it's increased. Even some uh, skin sickness coming, it's not usual here, it's not usual. Thank you very much. Now, we should say, of course, that the reason, uh, as I hinted earlier, that we're having this conversation is because the Whopping Project commissioned Topologies of Air. And it's clearly, by some margin, uh, the largest project that uh, the Whopping Project um, under uh, uh, Martha and Thomas uh, have undertaken. So I, I can imagine, obviously, you're grateful for their support. But is there um, a particular um, aspect of the Whopping Project's approach to, to uh, curation and programming that, that has, has kind of served you well? during this process? I have to say that with a project like this, I think that the Whopping Project are an extraordinary organisation in their trust and their um, nimbleness, their capacity to, to strike up a relationship with a set of ideas and, and a, a set of concerns um, from the very beginning and to engage in the development of that work and support it in so many different ways. So when I, um, when Marta and I first discussed the project, I had already um, been thinking about 
these issues for quite some time and topologies of air actually began or had its inception around 2012 um, where I did the original research or the initial research for it in the Outer Hebrides um, supported by um, Taikir Savag um, a museum and arts centre, a, a residency um, there. But the project really needed an organisation with the scope um, and uh, capacity to support it, to push it on to the, to the stage and realise the ambition um, of the project uh, over a long period of time. And I, I don't know that there are that many organisations who can work with an artist over so many, over such a long time, with the, with the with the commitment to realizing the project as it needs to be realized and as it needs to develop over time, especially in this these times um, where it's becoming more and more difficult for artists to realize work, um, you know, and the pressures on production um, are immense. I think that organisations like um, the Wapping Project that has such a deep history of, of focusing on the artwork and on creative production and on, on making are, be are becoming more and more and more valuable but also with the flexibility, the understanding that, um, that projects evolve and that things are discovered along the way and projects may expand and include many different um, contributors as this project has. It, you know, it has a, a, a wide and growing network of people who are involved in the project and connected to it. And, and I think that's quite extraordinary actually. Thank you very much indeed. I, I get a sense that you might like to add to that, Nick. Well, absolutely, yes. We're indebted to the Wapping Project, and certainly when when we think that this all started with the uh, the hearing in London at Doughty Street, uh, we 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 were very grateful to the Wapping Project for the support, the financial and other support that that they invested in the project that got it off the ground. And uh, the reason we're where we are today is in no small measure due to the the belief that Marta and Thomas and others showed in, in us and in the project. So we, we, we are extremely grateful to them. I'd just like to add one more thing, if I may, because this, this will always amuse me, and, and Shona will realise what I'm going to say, perhaps. But when, when I think where this came from, yes, we've both got, Shona and I have both got reasons for our, our respective interests in airspace and, and outer space, this all came about, you know, because of a chance encounter uh, at a planning meeting at the University of Kent a few years ago, about 2015, something like that. I, I was at the time dean for the University of Kent's Medway campus, and I had to. I, it was my misfortune to have to attend every school's planning meeting, and I went. I duly went along to the planning meeting for Shona's school. I didn't know Shona then. Um, and the only chair, or perhaps there were two chairs vacant in the whole room of people. Well, there was one next to this person who I later knew as Shona. And when we were having an interval, a coffee break during this boring planning meeting, um, Shona and I got chatting. 
as you do. And we discovered then that we had this mutual interest, this overlapping interest in airspace through, child, through Shona's childhood experiences uh, and, and my own. And that's where this project originated. And, and it, 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 it then grew into this proposal for an airspace, airspace tribunal and, and the proposed new human right. So um, I think that needs to go on the record, actually, as, as part of the reasons why we are here where we are today. I think it totally does. I mean, so, 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 you know, the dullest uh, academic planning meetings do have incredible outcomes. You, you just have to hold your nerve through all the That's endless right. uh, minute points and agendas. And That's then obviously right. Ab absolutely right. There's, yeah. there's gold at the end of the planning meeting. Um, no, thank you so much indeed for sharing that. And uh, to both of you for this uh, remarkable um, introduction uh, to uh, Topologies of Air and the Airspace Tribunal, of course, uh, both... Uh, shared partners going forward uh, with such important work in, in with different expressions and obviously much more to come. It's been a real pleasure uh, talking to both of you, uh, Shona and Nick. Many thanks as always to Marta, to Thomas and to Philippe for making this podcast series possible. Uh, I do hope you can join us uh, for future editions but uh, now do please join me wherever you are in raising a virtual glass or indeed an actual <laughs> glass um, to uh, the incredible work of Shona Illingworth and Nick Grief. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you Gareth very much. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you, you Martin. very much, Gareth. The language of human rights is among the very last of the languages available to us to fill a gap in our understanding of the world which is rooted in quality, esteem and empathy. Thank you very much indeed uh, for listening. This is the last episode in the current second series of Pass Forward, the Whopping Project 20. Um, I will be back with the third series uh, in the near future. But uh, in the meantime, please do find obviously much more information about the Whopping Project, old and new and into the future at thewhoppingproject.org. All the other podcasts in this series are available to listen to in the platforms that you have currently encountered them on. Uh, I do hope you keep well in this uh, continuingly strangest of times and uh, I will hope to be back with you shortly uh, with the third series of Pass Forward, The Whopping Project 20. Thank you very much indeed for your listening and attention and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>